good morning, guys. <clears throat> Happy August, August 1st. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Tanner, and as of yesterday, I am the student minister of The Fold. So that's something we can celebrate. We had our first student ministry event last night, and there's one thing I took away from it. If you need a very big and hot fire, Silas is the guy to talk to. You give that man a roll of newspaper and a spark, and it's gone. Way out of control. So that being said, um, we're going to talk about something that's kind of heavy today, okay? Um, we're going to talk about mental illness. And I know that's everyone's favorite topic to talk about. And it could not have come at a more important time in my life to preach this sermon. Um, for those of you who don't know, uh, actually really quick before we dive in, this is a very uncomfortable topic we're going to talk about. There is nothing that is keeping you in this seat, in the seat that you're in. So if this is a trigger of any kind of years, it's going to trigger some sort of trauma or any kind of anything like that. You are not glued to your seat. You are more than welcome to walk out in the lobby and sit there, whatever you need to do. You have that freedom, and I just want you to be aware of that before we dive in. So that being said, this is something that is very hard for me to talk about because it is something that I myself have struggled with for about three years. Um, on Christmas Day 2018, I had my first panic attack and had no idea what was going on. I thought I was having a heart attack. Um, I was sitting on the bed at my mom's house, and I texted a friend, was like, yo, why is my heart beating out of my chest? Why can't I breathe? What is going on? And she was like, you're having a panic attack. And I was like, That's, that can't be the thing. So I just want you to know that this is something that I suffer with. I also suffer from depression. Um, we're going to get into that a little bit more as we go into this. But before we dive in, I want you guys to know we're going to be in 1 Kings 19. Um, you know, it's kind of funny. I've spent the last seven months of my life in seminary studying Greek. So it only makes sense that we're going to study a topic today that was actually written in Hebrew. So, um, so yeah. So I'm going to just give you guys a little bit of history about the prophet Elijah. That's who we're going to be talking about today. Elijah is a very well-known prophet. Elijah with a J, not with an S. He comes afterwards. The best way to remember that, honestly, is J comes before S in the alphabet. So Elijah came before Elijah. So keep that up there, a little nugget of wisdom today. Um, so I'm going to give you guys a little backstory about Elijah. Um, so he was a prophet, like I said. God raised him up in Israel. Um, and when, uh, when Elijah was raised as a prophet, the king of the northern tribe of Israel was Ahab. 1 Kings 16.33 says Ahab was not God's favorite king. He was actually his least favorite king. So that being said... God told Elijah to go to Ahab and be like, hey, man, there's a drought coming, and you need to be ready. And Ahab was not cool with that. Ahab was like, please leave. Get out. I don't want anything to do with you anymore. So Elijah is banned from the northern kingdom, the northern kingdom of Israel. So he goes and lives by this creek. And that's kind of funny that God sends him to live by a creek when he just said there's a drought coming. So he goes down and lives by this creek. And, you know, since God is the provider, he provides food, provides water for him there until the creek dries up, you know, because they're in a drought. So the creek dries up. And Elijah's like, okay, what am I doing here? And then God sends him to go, kind of an upgrade of a living situation, to go live uh, on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. <clears throat> so the Mediterranean Sea is probably one of the bigger seas in this area of the world at the time. So he's going to live there, and God says, you're going to live with a widow and her son, and she is going to provide for you. So he shows up. This widow's like, what do you want me to do? I have very little flour and oil and water. Me and my son are prepared to eat this and die. We have no food. We have nothing. And, and Elijah's like, 
trust me, give me this food, give me what you have, and the Lord will provide. He provides for them not just one year or two years, but three years during this drought. Towards the end of the drought, or towards the end of the time that he's there, the widow's boy gets sick. Even though God is providing food and water, the widow's son still gets pretty sick to the point where the actual Hebrew says his breath left him. And the widow immediately blames Elijah for this. Says, this is your fault. What is going on? And Elijah's like, trust me, we got this. So through prayer and the power of God, Elijah raises the boy back to life. He puts breath back in his lungs. So we already see a miracle that happens. Actually, a couple miracles that happen. God providing during a drought. God raising a boy back from the, from the dead. That's just in chapter 17. Chapter 18 is where things get pretty crazy. So God tells Elijah it's time to go in the drought. So go find Ahab and tell him. And on his way there, he runs into a prophet named Obadiah. How many of you guys ever heard of the prophet Obadiah? Not that many people. He's not that, you know, not that, like, he's not Isaiah. He's not Elijah. He's not any of these other big prophets. But he played a pretty important role. During this time, there was a lady named Jezebel. We're going to get there in a second. But she was very known, she was well known for trying to kill all of the prophets of Yahweh. And Obadiah was known for hiding all the prophets of Obadiah. How many of you guys have ever seen Thor Ragnarok? Yeah, one of my favorite movies. There's a part in there where Hela is trying to kill all the Asgardians. This is going to be really nerdy really quick. Trying to kill all the Asgardians, and there's a guy named Heimdall that's hiding all of them in caves. That is, some, that is pretty much what's kind of going on right now. He's hiding them in these, ca- these caves, and Elijah shows up and sees him and, and tells Obadiah, hey, I'm going to go meet with King Ahab and tell him the drought's over. And he was like, whoa, 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 no, you're not. Because then you're going, to tell, you're going to tell me to go tell him that, and you're going to disappear, and then Jezebel is going to kill me. And he's like, no, trust me. God told me to come here. It's going to be fine. So Obadiah takes him at his word, goes and tells Ahab. Elijah meets with Ahab. And the first thing that Ahab tells him is, you are Israel's destroyer. And Elijah's like, uh, no, pulls out an Uno reverse card and hands it to him and says, actually, it is you because you are the one who married Jezebel, who brought pagan worship into the northern kingdom of Israel. Jezebel worshipped this pagan god named Baal. And Baal, I want you to remember this going into this. Baal was the god of thunder and fire. Remember that. God of thunder and fire. So then Elijah's like, you know what? I'm done. We're going to see who the one true god really is. Show up tomorrow, Mount Carmel, 4 o'clock. Bring your boys, bring your girls, bring all the prophets of Baal, all the people who are on the fence. Bring them here. I'll show up. We're going to build two altars, bring two bulls, and we're going to see whose God shows up and does the sacrifice. They get there, trial by fire time. So what happens is um, the prophets of Baal, they build this altar and put a bull on it. They call out for hours and hours, crying and praying and screaming and singing to try to get Baal's attention to rain fire down on this. Nothing happens. And Elijah's over there mocking them like, see, told you. It was so bad. They were so desperate for Baal to show up. They were cutting their own flesh because they believed that during this time of this this particular pagan worship, that the gods were asleep in the underworld, and when the blood touched the ground, it woke them up. So they were cutting their hands and cutting their arms, and blood was hitting the ground, and still nothing happened. And so Elijah's like, all right, you tapping out, my turn. So then Elijah not only gets one, two, but 12 massive jugs of water 
Remember, we're in a drought. Three years into a drought, he gets 12 jugs of water, dumps it on his offering, completely soaks it, digs a trench around the offering, fills the trench with water. Do you know how much faith that's got to take that God's going to rain down on that? Not only to do the sacrifice, but also you're pouring out so much water during a drought. So much water. And what happens? He prays. Not only does the Bible say that fire rained down on the altar, it engulfed it. Engulfed it completely. It's like when we put a paper plate on the fire last night, gone. (laughs) Instantly gone. And then Elijah, you know, Elijah's kind of feeling himself, feeling pretty confident in this moment. So he's like, you know what? We're done with this. God commands Elijah to go out and kill all the prophets of Baal, some 850 of them. So they do it. And all of those who were on the fence and other people turned and worshiped Yahweh, and they went out and killed all these prophets, killed all the prophets of Baal. And so then, yeah, so huge victory right there for the Lord. So then um, Elijah goes up to the top of the mountain where Ahab is having his feast, and he's like, Hey, man, I know you're enjoying yourself. You need to get down this mountain quick because there's rain coming. You need to get down if you don't want to be stuck in this rain. So that brings us to the very last verse of chapter 18 in 1 Kings, which says, The power of the Lord was on Elijah, and he tucked his mantle under his belt and read and ran ahead of Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. A lot just went down in Elijah's life, right? So much just happened. Elijah just had one of the greatest victories in the name of the Lord at this time. Elijah is quite literally on the mountaintop, physically and spiritually. Nothing was going to stop him. Let's read 1 Kings 19. Ahab told Jezebel everything that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, may the gods punish me and do so severely if I don't make your life, excuse me, like one of them by this time tomorrow. Then Elijah became afraid and immediately ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba that belonged to Judah, he left his servant there, but he went on a day's journey into the wilderness. He sat down under a broom tree and prayed that he might die. He said, I have had enough. Lord, take my life, for I am no better than my father's. Then he lay down and slept under the broom tree. What just happened? You see all of these amazing miracles right in front of Elijah's face. And then he gets one death threat. And he's done. He's had enough. He's seen God provide for him in the wilderness, quite literally provide food for him. You see this power and authority that God gives him to end a drought, to start and end a drought. And then one small death threat sends him into this massive mental breakdown. So let's ask this question. Why on earth would he be afraid of Jezebel when he just witnessed 850 prophets of Baal, whom Jezebel worshiped, die? Why would he be afraid? Elijah just lived through various displays of God's power, and yet he still feared for his life. Jezebel's reputation as an agent of death outweighed God's reputation as a giver of life. Despite what he just saw, right? There's nothing, nothing makes sense about this. 
this is what mental illness can do to our brains. And this is, you're not supposed to do this. Every preaching class I've ever taken has told me not to do this, but this is the main idea and I need you to understand this. Mental illness can take what God gives us for good, turn it around and have us question whether God's character is enough to get us through our current condition. I experienced this in this last week very heavily. I sat on this stage yesterday for two hours crying, having a mental breakdown because I didn't know how to handle things. That's what mental illness can do to you guys. And it, can, it did it to me. He knew what God was capable of doing, but yet he still feared for his life. So let's keep reading. Let's see, let's see, if, there's any, let's see if there's any good things that happen. Suddenly an angel touched him and the angel told him, get up and eat. Then he looked, and there at his head was a loaf of bread baked over hot stones and a jug of water. So he ate and drank and laid down again. Then the angel of the Lord returned for a second time and touched him. He said, get up and eat, or the journey will be too much for you. So he got up, ate and drank, and then on the strength from that food, he walked for 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mountain of God. He entered a cave and spent the night. Let's make a few observations really quick. So he finished asking God to kill him, you know, just normal things. Um, and then he fell asleep. It's safe to say that Elijah was going through a pretty heavy depressive spell, don't you think? His fear led into his depressive spell and dominated his life to the point where he wanted to die. And guys, fear is not the only thing that can cause depression or other mental illnesses. And there's a couple of main, there are a couple of um, causes I want us to be aware of moving forward. Trauma is a big one, stress, chemical imbalances in your brain, personal failures, trying to preserve your image like the way you are seen by the world, fear, sometimes it can be hereditary, nature versus nurture complications, unhealthy attachments, unhealthy family upbringings, environmental stressors. If you don't believe me on the last one, think back to March of 2020 to now. COVID caused a huge spike in mental illnesses because everyone's environment was affected no matter what. There's a, there's a statistic right now that in a average family of four, at least one person has some sort of mental illness, whether they know it or not. And, and COVID caused a huge spike in that because it forced people to stay in unhealthy environments if they were in one. And sometimes it even forced people to be in lockdown with the people who abused them physically and mentally. So it was, it's been a tough time for people who have been dealing with this recently. Um, so yeah, so those are, some, those are some causes of it. There's not all the causes of it, but let's, let's keep going. So the angel of the Lord woke him not just once, but twice, okay? Both times providing food and water for him. The first time, God didn't ask anything of Elijah. He simply just gave him what he needed in the moment, which was food and water and a lot of sleep. He simply provided. The second time, it's a little different. Look at the wording in verse seven. Then the angel of the Lord returned for a second time and touched him. He said, get up and eat, or the journey will be too much for you. Have you guys ever tried to like run without drinking water or eating anything? I wanna throw up like immediately. It's, pretty, it's really difficult to try to do something that requires physical exhaustion without the sustenance that you need to do it. The things that made his, his journey bearable was food and water and sleep. And as people who 
are walking through mental illnesses or people who are walking alongside of people with mental illnesses. We have to identify and seek out the things that make the journey bearable. For me, it's, in, it's inviting others into my battle with anxiety or depression. We have to let the giver of life fill us and find friends and family that refresh us. When you feel like you have no hope, we have to bring the people around us to hold that hope for us. And guys, that is, that is not easy. It is not easy to let people in to some of the darkest things that you experience. It's really not. It's very difficult. But I think it's very important that we do that. So let's read the rest of this story. Um, and we're going to see a lot of hope in this. Then the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, What are you doing, Elijah? Remember, he just entered a cave the night before. What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts, but the Israelites have abandoned your covenant and torn down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they are looking, to t- they are looking for me to take my life. Then he said, go out and stand on the mountain in the Lord's presence. At that moment, the Lord passed by. A great and mighty wind was tearing at the mountains and was shattered and was shattering cliffs before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake, there was a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, there was a voice, a soft whisper. When Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. Suddenly a voice came to him and said, what are you doing here? Again, he repeats the same prayer. I have been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts, but the Israelites have abandoned your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they're looking for me to take my life. Then the Lord said to him, Go and return by the way you came in the wilderness of Damascus. When you arrive, you are to anoint Hazel as king over Aram. You are to anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, as king over Israel, and Elisha, son of Shaphat, from abel as prophet in your place. And then Jehu will put to death whoever escapes the sword of Hazel, and Elijah will put to death whoever escapes the sword of Jehu. But I will leave 7,000 in Israel, every knee that is not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that is not kissed them. So here we see Elijah's depressive episode in full force. God asked him twice what he was doing, and his response was the same. I've been faithful to you. I've been honoring to you. Yet still the Israelites have abandoned your covenant and torn down your altar and killed your prophets. I alone am left. His identity switched from being zealous for the Lord to being I am all alone and I want to die. Mental illness is really good at convincing us that we are alone. God did not want to let Israel go even though they turned away from him. And so he gave Elijah the task of fighting for the nation. And he was the only one who was faithful. And it left him in a place where he wanted to die. We've been created to walk in community with one another, but it's so easy to feel alone even in a church building on a Sunday morning. Elijah was blinded by his depression and couldn't see that it was only because of God that he was still alive. His identification as alone and threatened is surely based 
on the faulty memory arising from his depressed state. He asserts that Israel has abandoned God's covenant, but Mount Carmel saw that covenant reinstituted. He asserts that God's altars have been torn down, but he has just rebuilt one in 1 Kings 18.30. He asserts that God's prophets have been killed with the sword, but Obadiah has saved them and Baal's prophets instead have died. Elijah's recall of the facts is displaced by his fear for his life at the hands of Jezebel. And he was listening to the voices that were telling him that he was alone. The prophet who had sit in on Mount Carmel acted and spoke with trust and authority now cowers and complains. His complaint takes the form of a lament in which he protests his innocence, complains about his prophetic ministry, and asks for divine help. So in other words, he has reached his breaking point, and the only thing he can say is, Lord, help me. I am alone. I am done. Those places are real, guys. Those places are very, if we can't cry out to God in the depths, where can we cry out to him from? We don't have to be on the mountaintop for a mountaintop experience with God. God meets us, and we see that because he calls Elijah out of the cave. In the chaos, God spoke to his servant in a kind, gentle, and soft voice. Elijah heard God's voice in a chaotic storm and chose to walk out of the cave and meet with him. So call and response time. Did God yell? Did he condemn him for being depressed and wanting to die? Even though that Elijah was going through it, God still spoke to him, and Elijah still stepped out of the cave. Yet, even in a misguided place, God encourages his prophet, meeting him in the midst of his fear and commissioning him once again to take up his prophetic ministry. The part where it talks about him taking his mantle and covering his face sounds pretty familiar to Moses in Exodus, right, when he meets with God at the burning bush. I think that is a, that is a significant detail that's put in here to show just how close God was with Elijah in this moment. Any time in the Old Testament where it says so-and-so was blinded by the angel of the Lord or so-and-so had to cover their face in the presence of God because God's glory and his power is so mighty that we can't look at it face-to-face when we're that close. And Elijah had an experience like that where he took the mantle that God gave him that represented him as a prophet and put it in between him and God. So... The typical address for prophetic ministry, the word of the Lord came to Elijah. It's called a prophetic formula. In the Old Testament, it's something like, thus says the Lord, or the word of the Lord came to so-and-so, whoever that may be. That's a very common way that the Lord spoke through prophets. Despite Elijah's flight, he is still God's prophet. Despite our condition, we are still God's people. Elijah's depression did not disqualify him from doing the work of the Lord. So I want to ask this question, why, then why was he depressed? He saw God's authority in giving him the authority to start and end a drought. He saw God's abundance in providing food for the widow, for him, for many days, for three years. He saw God's power in raising the widow's boy from the dead. He saw God's mercy in calling him to go to Ahab rather than him telling, rather than telling him to send Obadiah to be killed. He saw God's authority in him standing by himself against 850 prophets of a pagan God who eat at Jezebel's table. He saw God's providence by pouring water rations on and around the altar, knowing that God promised to end the drought. He saw God's power when God rained fire on the altar to show that he is the one true God. Baal was the God of fire and thunder and yet couldn't produce any fire. God engulfed the altar with flames. He saw God's holiness by killing the 850 prophets because God demands holiness from his people. 
On top of that, he saw many turn from their ways and worship that Yahweh is the one true God. And after seeing this, he gets one measly death threat from Jezebel. And he's decided that he's had enough. Like I said in the beginning, guys, this is what mental illness can do to us. It can take what God means for good, flip it upside down, and have us question if God's character is enough to overcome our current condition. So when it feels like you're standing in the cave of depression or anxiety or PTSD or any of that mental illness, and there's chaos surrounding you and it feels like you're drowning, know that there is hope out there. And you wanna know why I know there's hope? Because God did not leave Jesus in the cave. God does not leave his children in the grave. He raises them from the dead when they call upon him and believe. Paul teaches us that we will experience a bodily resurrection. And I believe that because of that, all of these things that drown us, all of our depression, our anxiety, all of our mental illnesses that we carry will stay in the grave. So when it feels like you're at the end of your rope and you have to, you're trying to start a fire in a cave that's covered with water and you can't find that spark and you have to dig and dig and look and look, it's that type of gritty hope that produces character and perseverance to keep us going and to keep us trusting that God does keep his promises. This might be the most important thing I say, okay? So I've just I've talked about mental illnesses a good bit. We've seen how God provides in these times. And you might be sitting there, well, what if I don't have this? What if this isn't something I struggle with? How you view mental illness matters. How you view the Holy Spirit matters. If you think that mental illnesses exist because of it, it's a lack of faith in the Holy Spirit, then your theology of the Holy Spirit needs to be revitalized. The Holy Spirit is kind. He is sweet. He is merciful. He is the voice that called Elijah out of the cave. God wasn't competing with the chaos to get Elijah's attention. He was not. God didn't yell at him for running away. He used a still and gentle voice. So when you're trying to help someone who's battling these things, blanket statements are not helpful. Statements like, you just need to pray more. You just need more faith. If you really want to help someone who's suffering from mental illness, be there with them in the cave. Not just when they want to step out. Be there when they're in the midst of it. That is called the ministry of presence. You see in this, you see in this story, God, uh, Elijah left his servant and went on this journey by himself. Who knows what would have happened if he had brought his servant with him? He could have, you know, ministered to him. He could have reminded him of what he just went through days before. There is space in the kingdom of God because in, when you enter the kingdom, there is fullness and healing. Mental illness is real, guys. It's very complex. It's not a one-size-fits-all kind of solution. There's no adapter you can plug in to fix things. It's very real. And one of the hardest things to understand about it is we can't really see it on scans. But we can't bury the problem of mental illness and expect it go, to go away. We have to shine a light on it. How many of you guys, like when you were a kid, one of your parents was working on something, and they're like, here, can you hold this flashlight? And you're shining it, and then you start to turn your head a little bit. The next thing you know, you're doing this with the flashlight, and you don't even know what he's working on. I don't know why that's a thing, why parents give kids that one job and they get mad at them for not holding the flashlight when their attention spans are like 15 seconds at max. But it's hard to fix something without shining a light on it, isn't it? And so we have to talk about these things. We have to do the work. 
if the Lord spoke to you today through this story and you want to talk to somebody about it, please find somebody on the ministry team. Chelsea, we have a counselor on staff here. That's our job. She wants to do this. She's serving the church doing this. If you want to know where I got the list of all those causes of mental illnesses, directly from her. We can either listen to the Holy Spirit and start the journey of healing, or we can simply ignore it and find ourselves in a cave surrounded by chaos, pretending that we got it all together. The first step is the hardest, but we are here to help you put on your shoes and take the steps out of the cave. We, we can't heal you, but we believe in the power of God that can. Another beautiful characteristic about God is that we need a savior that cries with us. Hebrews 4, 15 through 16 says, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tested in every way as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us at the proper time. We have a savior that cries with us. We have a savior that sees us through his mercy. He sees our hearts. He doesn't see our condition as something that he can't fix. So in closing, I wanna read this quote that has provided so much hope for me in the last few months. It's a, the, it's a theologian named Kosuke Koyama, and he uses this imagery upon meeting Jesus after death. And I think we can all find some comfort in it. So upon meeting the risen Jesus after death, this is what he imagines Jesus saying to him. You've had a difficult journey. You must be tired and dirty. Let me wash your feet. The banquet is ready. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the comfort of your word, the comfort of knowing that there is, there is more than what our current condition tells us there is. God, we, we want to see healing in Greenville. We want to see healing in our state, but we can't see healing in our state if we don't wanna walk through that healing first. So God, teach us how to soften our souls like Elijah did to listen to your voice, even when the chaos is too much. And God, give us grace. Let us show grace to ourselves when we can't do that. Jesus, thank you for the ultimate sacrifice so that when you raise us from the dead, you leave all of our transgressions and all of the things that keep us from being whole. Thank you for your sacrifice in Jesus' name.